0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. A young black British woman, prepared with a posh university degree and a job in finance that allows her a seemingly comfortable life asks a terrifying question. Does my country care whether I live or die? This is the conceit of Natasha Brown's blockbuster debut, Assembly, a novel that Desiree Baptiste described as brilliantly sharp, slim but not slight. It blows apart the flimsily constructed notion of a race-blind meritocracy. On today's episode, I speak with Natasha Brown, winner of the London Writers' Award, about her first book and its incredible reception. Assembly is a thrilling investigation of black subjectivity and a deep dive into the consciousness of a gifted woman who attempts against all odds to puzzle her way out of the intellectual and material binds and traps that her own society has set out for her. Assembly commands our attention with its unflinching approach to race, gender, late capital, and black life writ large, even as it dazzles with its poetic drive and lyrical language. Natasha conceives of her work as entangled with the history and language of imperialism and its many afterlives in Britain. She, like her narrator, asks an enduring question. How precisely does one interrogate the biases of a language while relying on that very language to express oneself? If you are, like me, a fan of the short novel, then assembly will soon become the archetype for what a writer can do with an economy of form and a formidable intellect. I know you will love learning more from Natasha herself. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. Natasha Brown spent nearly a decade in finance before winning the London Writers Award. The result of that prize was the novel Assembly, a book that Brandon Taylor calls mind-bending and utterly original, like Thomas Bernhard in The Key of Rachel Cusk, but about Black subjectivity. Assembly comes to us as a fever dream, with the unnamed narrator, a young black British woman in the financial world, describing the anxiety and sometimes horror of living in a country that rejects and objectifies her at every turn. Our narrator is, on the surface, quite well settled. Good job, good education, good savings, regular boyfriend. But under the surface, she roils with dread. Strangers assault her with racial slurs and physical violations, while co-workers cut her with a thousand tiny microaggressions, belittling her work, questioning her qualifications. The plot steams towards a getaway to her boyfriend's parents' country estate, where there will be a garden party. But the narrator finds every inch of the ground and handful of soil is saturated with empire, with the blood and capital spilled elsewhere to fund the society of traditions that she encounters there. At a mere 102 pages, Assembly manages to evoke more feeling, more sensorial reality than many novels twice its length. Natasha has gone to the novel's primary function, its vision into the inner life of a character, and she has brought it to bear on the precariousness of black life. The result is a work of literary fiction that is profoundly beautiful, with passages of poetic form and lyrical narrations of a world that her narrator experiences as ultimately negating. Negating of her agency, Her accumulated wealth and status, her education, her citizenship, and ultimately of her bare life. Suffused with its contemporary moment, with references to the police killing of Philando Castile and the white nationalist resurgence in Britain, assembly is fundamentally a reminder that the sun has yet to set on the colonial mindset, and that the black body and black intellect still do not register within that imperial logic. Assembly is moving. It is bleak in its assessment of British life and culture, but it is beautiful to behold in its artistry and in its truth-telling exercise. It asks, in the end, everything from its reader and from the next writer who would represent Black life. Welcome to the show, Natasha Brown
2: hi thank you for having me
1: thank you for being here um would you mind reading a short section from assembly for us something to get a a sense of the narrator in our ear and would you give us a little bit of context for where we are in the novel
2: sure so as you mentioned the narrator's on her way to a garden party Um, she travels from london out uh, to this estate in the countryside and this is sort of the night before um, just as she's collecting her thoughts and thinking about what's about to come absent my phones glow the dark is perfect my eyes are slow to adjust The quiet here is absolute. I feel unobserved, though I know what is to come and what is expected of me at tomorrow's party. I understand the function I'm here to perform. There's a promise of enfranchisement and belonging, yes, a narrative peak in the story of my social ascent. Of course they, the family, even the guests. You I could not turn down such an invitation. I will be watched. That's the price of admission. They'll want to see my reactions to their abundance. Polite restraint, concealed outrage, and a base desirous hunger beneath. I must play this part of a veneer of new millennial money coolness, serving up savage witticisms alongside the hors d'oeuvres. It's a fictionalisation of who I am, my engagement transforms the fiction into truth. My thoughts, my ideas, even my identity, can only exist as a response to the partygoer's words and actions, articulated along the perimeter of their form, reinforcing both their selfhood and its centrality to mine. How else can they be certain of who they are and what they aren't? Delineation requires a sharp, black outline. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much. That was beautiful. (laughs) Assembly drops us into the life of your narrator without exposition. We experience everything in the novel via her intellect. What drew you to writing something so fully contained within a narrator's interiority?
2: I was certainly interested in how I could achieve um, subjectivity for the narrator, given the constraints that to me it seems were clear on essentially the the genre that I have to write in as a result of it being a debut and as a result of how you get boxed. Hmm. So I knew that kind of the voice, whether it was either first person narration or a very close third person, and this feeling of being very close, being very intimate with the narrator was just um, an expectation of the genre, really.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, and the, it's perhaps the gift of the novel to take us into um, interiority in a way that our lives in, in the material world don't allow. And certainly the, the interiority you give us is incredibly beautiful. Your narrator works in finance. She's a university graduate, she has an impressive savings, and yet she's filled with dread. Quote, every day is an opportunity to fuck up. Every decision, every meeting, every report, there's no success, only the temporary aversion of failure. It is a dread that she feels choking her to death. Would you describe how this sense of profound unbelonging and precarious life drives your narrator?
2: I think it's a really useful way of characterizing her, particularly at the beginning, because this is a character we're not used to seeing in fiction. If you you at the beginning described her as a young black woman, if you say a book is about a young black woman, this isn't the character that typically comes to mind. As a result, I knew I had to do extra work um, to, bring the reader up to speed and to also make her at least somewhat sympathetic for the reader to get them on board, to sort of follow when the novel gets uh, more unexpected further down the line. So this moment, these sort of really heightened um, emotional moments are there to be a kind of recognisable sensation of burnout, really, which I think is familiar to a lot of people, particularly after the last couple of years i used it here to make her accessible hopefully to perhaps readers who are coming from a different background and need a bridge to get to where she is
1: i found her incredibly accessible and um, deeply deeply sympathetic and also just i was um it felt wonderful to spend time in her intellect because even though as I've described it it is a it is a book that is has plenty of dread It is also one of um, amazing beauty and observation and I think that was um, one of the things that struck me about living for this brief time within your narrator's mind was that I I loved being there and I felt even, as you say, as things change later on and become more and more contentious and, and morally fraught, I still loved the way that she was able to describe the world.
2: I'm really glad to hear that because I felt in a lot of ways, this isn't how you should describe a book, but nothing much happens um, in this novel. (laughs) (laughs) And so I knew that if in order to pull it off, in order for this to succeed and to not waste someone's time, if they sit down and read this book... The voice had to do the heavy lifting and her voice had to convince, it had to grab you just right from the opening pages and take you along on this journey. So I'm really happy to hear that.
1: So capitalism in assembly is a machine that extracts labor, but it's also a means of exclusion of black people from the wealth created by that labor in its contemporary forms. The narrator's colleagues at work enjoy the spoils of their large salaries and benefits, while she must constantly drive towards perfection and even more accumulation of a personal safety net. Could you talk a bit about how the exclusion of Black Brits from generational wealth creates a sense of everyday peril in the novel?
2: Mm. Well, I think in terms of how capitalism at least the book's perspective on capitalism is described for me I see it uh, slightly less clear than that I think at one point the narrator describes the bank that she works for as a machine that has this side effect of social mobility Um, but I think that's the director the narrator's perspective in that moment and not necessarily the thesis of the book as a whole. Though I do think, um, for me, what I was really interested in exploring sort of on the individual level with assembly is the economic shift uh, we've seen in the last couple of decades, which has um, sort of made this book possible. If this book was set 20 years ago, it wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible for the narrator to have, you know, gone to an elite university and then worked in this industry and amassed um, wealth so quickly. The reason it's possible is because of the emergence of the quaternary sector in the economy, essentially. So that's knowledge work, information services, and the growth and domination, frankly, of the tertiary and quaternary sectors in the UK and the US. It's created this job, the narrator does, that didn't exist a couple of decades ago. And I'm really interested in how this shift that's sort of been fueled by the evolution of capitalism has changed I suppose, the relationship between race and class and the assumptions that we can take uh, with race and class. And for me, that's a very... It's this moment of flux that we're in and it's really fascinating to tease out some of the nuances of it in fiction. I think um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsen Hamid is really exploring, um, for me, the exact same mechanism. Mm -hmm. And even Leave the World Behind, I think, uses it not as the direct sort of focus, but a background justification for some of the situations of its characters. Uh, For me, it's just this huge, uh, exciting, nebulous thing that is really I think fiction and novels are a really great form to tease out how that looks in reality
1: yes and and those books that you mentioned um both of which I I adore I I feel like do do a similar work in that they that they show the the way that new class structures that upset old binaries of of race and class are are coming into being and yet the society is is too slow or at least latent in coming to terms with them and so in a way it seems in your book and certainly in in Hamid and Ruman Alam's books uh it it turns into animus and would you say that it's it it is the case in, in Britain that there's a real struggle to keep up with those new forms of work that distort the the binary.
2: I, I completely agree. I think we're in this strange moment where our cultural understanding hasn't caught up with reality. And I think Leave the World Behind is so interesting because, you know, I think in five, 10 years time, it's going to seem crazy that you could for 50 pages um have suspense about whether or not a black couple owned a nice house. <laughs> it's a really strange thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is it is a bizarre thing and yet it's it's a necessary conceit for the novel that the that the white uh couple and family staying temporarily in this home would be gobsmacked by it.
2: Yeah, and I think it really is um sort of as you say we haven't quite caught up. And I think some of, one thing I found just really interesting reading around this and thinking around this is that anti-capitalist rhetoric is really becoming quite populist and it's not a left or a right political thing, it's a broadly growing sentiment. And I think in some ways that is um, a reflex uh, in response to how This shift doesn't really need to sustain the racial categories we've had since the 19th century anymore. I'm not saying that's erased altogether, but it's certainly its function in our economy is being weakened. And I think, of course, that's going to upset the balance of things because that's how our society has worked for a few hundred years.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. So if if new forms of work within capitalism are seen as upsetting the... The traditional ways then there will be perhaps a kind of right-leaning anti-capital uh movement
2: i think it sort of transcends political category almost i think um it it slices things slightly differently
1: mm. yeah that's nicely said the Many of the interactions that the narrator has with everyday Brits, and this is a dramatization of, I think, exactly what you're talking about here, are marked by disgust and xenophobia directed at her. Strangers call her the N-word, spit in her direction, tell her to go, quote-unquote, home, or express their anger that she is well-dressed and appointed with the ornaments of wealth. This feels deeply intertwined with Brexit and white nationalism that seems to be once again showing its full vitriol. Is your work informed um, in some part by Brexit?
2: I think partially the answer is yes, only because at the moment, everything, uh, at least in the UK, is informed by that or, you know, you can't read the text without the broader context, of course, that um, additional shading will come in. Uh, Specifically, is it something that I guess I wanted to examine or really explore through the novel? Not so much, I think the narrator talks about looking at what's going on in sort of Europe with uh, dispassionate curiosity and I think that's really the tone of the tone of the novel towards this. It's really a crisis I think of identity um, on a personal level and on a national level but really only among folks who've never considered themselves as having an identity or having a race. I think that stretching of um the boundaries of what's considered raceless um which has sort of been happening over the last few decades of course has led to this crisis of okay who's us and who's them but um you know the narrator isn't considered British in most of Europe, hmm. um, and it's very interesting seeing how uh, the book in translation is categorised in newspapers. Sometimes it's called African American literature, uh, which is oh my just goodness. bizarre. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think this sort that of that would crisis... be news to you, I imagine. <laughs> yeah.
1: And congratulations on your dual citizenship.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hear there's a tax burden associated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But yes, I think this crisis of identity and where, um, you know, how British intersects with European just isn't present for people who were never included in the first place.
1: Mm. That's incredibly well said. The (laughs) The major plotted event of the second half of the novel is a party at the narrator's boyfriend's parents' country estate. The narrator is paralyzed with anxiety as she considers getting on the train to the estate the house itself and its grounds are in some ways dramatized as the physical manifestation of wealth extracted from empire. No matter how much money the narrator makes, she will never belong within the boundaries of the estates that were founded on profits drawn from places like Jamaica, where her parents are from. So much of 18th and 19th century British literature is set on estates just like the ones you describe. Were you trying to reframe the way that that kind, that particular architecture has been used as a setting for British literature and culture?
2: I think I was really intentionally engaging with that trope which you point out in English literature. Um, and I think I was explicitly using it as... Sort of the narrative engine within the novel because it's something we recognize that we've seen in a lot of novels this fish out of water character attending or visiting uh, the grand country house we know where it's going we know the thrust in the story and having something i think that's so so conventional <laughs> in the plotting, allowed me to sort of use it as the underlying skeleton for some of the more experimental and less clear elements of the the narrative.
1: I couldn't help but think about the, the great edifices of English literature and their subtle connections in the 19th century to the the spoils of empire so the brother paul and howard's end who must extend the family's wealth by working as a manager in the plantations they own in nigeria or sir thomas bertram's rage at fanny price upon re- returning from the sugar plantations in antigua do you see yourself in dialogue with either of these novels or in that kind of strange place of empire as the the present absence in 19th century novels?
2: I think with those specific novels, I haven't read Howard's End, (laughs) so not in that one. In in Mansfield Park, I feel certainly, uh, as we were talking about before, um, it uses the same narrative trope of uh, Fanny going to this house and feeling uh, out of place. I think the broader, um, you know, when people talk about their incomes, how many thousands a year as a very polite way of referencing um, their, their plantations, I think that's certainly something I was very aware of reading this sort of literature. And I think uh, Jane Austen, uh, particularly in style um, and satire, has certainly influenced how I approach writing. Uh, but I think in terms of the influence of uh, colonial activities on society I think for me within this novel it's much more about things like the NHS which is our in the UK socialised healthcare system Uh, that that got on its feet because we sort of mass imported qualified nurses uh, from countries in the empire that's why we have um, a nationalised health service I didn't know that Yes, um, so absolutely, that was, you know, um, a big recruiting push, Uh, you had ministers going out to a lot of the different countries, encouraging trained nurses to come to the UK and work um, for the NHS as part of the post-war rebuilding effort. Um, And that's one of those things, I think it's, you know, we hold it up as, and rightly so, a very positive, um, socialist-leaning thing we have in our society but it's absolutely um only possible because of uh, the colonial history here
1: that's fascinating and i'm sure that any slight kind of scraping of the surface of the major things that are associated with a british society today you you will find certainly colonial underpinnings which i think is you know part and parcel to what assembly is 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 talking about. The the novel is broken into irregular sections that sometimes feel like chapters and at other times look like mini essays or thought prompts. This is matched by sudden formal shifts from prose to poetry to footnote. What I loved about these inconsistencies is that it seemed as though you were having the character experiment with ways to think about her life. Virginia Woolf once declared that we need new forms for our new sensations. Are you showing us the intellectual processes via which your narrator attempts new forms to try and understand her dread?
2: Mm. I think for me, um, possibly this is a result of coming to writing later in life, but reading sort of across genres and across forms i wanted to use form as the same way i'd use any other element of writing in order to best tell the story in order to best reveal the character in order to best get across the feel and the function of the novel and i think how i landed on doing it and what felt right for assembly was to say, okay, the narrator doesn't have a traditional character arc in the sense that she doesn't really change or grow or anything like that over <laughs> the course of the novel. <laughs> Another one of those things probably not supposed to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you said the quiet part out loud.
2: <laughs> <laughs> But where I see her character art coming from is this development of subjectivity and also um, stepping actively into the role of narrating. The book at the beginning, it starts in third person. It starts with a very, almost walking the line of, I think, satirical depiction of this sort of novel, this sort of genre novel. And by the end, hopefully she's, completely change the way that the story is told and the focus she's taken um she's taken the reins essentially of the storytelling she determines the pace how quickly how long we stay in a moment how far we zoom out from a scene how close we zoom in and she's much more intentionally playful with the form she uses the footnote uh, at one point which to me is really the turning point when she starts actively narrating and then she kind of has some outright metaphysical elements, I think, where she kind of analyzes the story that she sits within. And to me, that that growth and the ability to hopefully bring a reader along to that part of the novel is what it's about and what the form allowed me to do to kind of break out of the genre constraints.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: This gives me a really nice way to understand the the formal shift (laughs) as in the direction of the narrator wrestling the subjectivity of being able to narrate her own story. I like that very much. (laughs) Thanks. The narrator does come to the conclusion that, quote, my only tool of expression is the language of this place its bias, and assumptions permeate all reason I could construct from it. In short, the very language that she uses to attempt to understand her circumstances is the foundational material used to construct the British Empire and thus operate with the unbreakable assumption that she is an object to be exploited. Is there a way out of this language trap? And perhaps it's, it's partially what you were just describing there, that kind of grabbing up of the language. Are there potentially new forms of expression that can be decoupled from colonial
2: thinking? I think my aims are much more modest. I'm really interested in accurate description. And I think with the language, and I suppose the approach to language of the novel, it's taking a very straightforward uh, semiotics lens to these words and saying, hey, look, words and concepts don't develop independently they develop together as a society and a people develop their language and the concepts that we have and the way we describe them evolve with the activities of a society so of course um, the language facilitates what the people are trying to do If we take a sign, so we have the word, how we say it, how it's written, you know, the other words it relates to, and the concept that we use it to refer to, I'm really interested in that arrow that goes from the word to the concept and revealing, I suppose, the artifice of that. It's not something natural, it's not something that's been discovered, it's been something that's been created. And for me, the approach to language in the novel is really about pointing to that arrow and, and pointing to where where I suppose human intent and human needs have caused these words and concepts to be paired up and for us to arrange our concepts together in the way that we have uh, which sounds very very abstract and I think what I really tried to do with the novel is make it very um, concrete and specific and talk about specific words but it's that um, that coupling that I really wanted to examine
1: so you're really coming at it from a semiotics perspective and wanting to interrogate that that moment in which the the word becomes concept and asking whether there's a way to to understand it and therefore be able to grapple with its ramifications is that right
2: Absolutely I think it's just an awareness that I was seeking to create I think sometimes we take language for granted and we assume it's neutral. And I think the question for me at the heart of this novel was, is language neutral? What are the ways we can talk about language? How can we use a language to assess its own neutrality? All of these things are questions I've been interested in and questions I've been reading around and I wanted to try and, through this story, through this character, through everything else, have it still succeed on novelistic terms, but to really tackle these quite abstract questions too.
1: As a literary critic, the shadow text of assembly is Ngugiwa Thiongo's Decolonizing the Mind, in which he argued that colonialism's most intractable violence is the way in which it forces enslaved people to accede to the logic of colonialism, even as those people argue for their liberation. Was he on your mind at all?
2: I would say not specifically as a direct influence, I think. I've been reading post-colonial literature and trying to, I guess I studied maths, I don't have a liberal arts education, so trying to catch up in that area. But I think one thing I've noticed from, quite rightly, post-colonial literature is not talking about people living in um, the the countries that have done the colonising, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of of course not. Um, But for for this character, this book, there's no sort of local language or alternate language. English is the language I'm certainly working with, the narrator's working with. So I feel some of those um, questions of what it means to write in English aren't applicable in the same way when English is your language.
1: Yes, that's right. And, and you know, folks like Franz Fanon would say then that the kind of the psychology of understanding one's own language, one's original language, is one of determining its non-neutrality and needing to struggle and having to struggle with the, the language that is your DNA. It's the, the only expression that you have in, in kind of that most rooted form. Can we can we talk for a moment about the title? Assembly in my reading refers to the narrator's developing understanding of the structures of capital and empire that organize all life and relationships around her. Could you talk about how you came to this title and what you saw as its multiple meanings for the novel?
2: I think my working title was Deconstruction, um, which I heard is not a great title for a novel.
1: Oh, no, I, I think that's fabulous, <laughs> although I love Assembly.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so Assembly sort of turns it around in a sense uh, with a little bit of irony, this sort of the act of construction. Um, it, it has that meaning within it. And I think for me, one of the central metaphors is the marquee that's being created in in the garden for this party and it's going to be a beautiful thing it's going to bring a lot of people together it's the engine for the plot but it's also a very violent thing to construct this structure um out in on on the lawn in the grass but i also think the very literal meaning of assembly a school assembly where the narrator in the opening scene addresses these children. I wanted to kind of point to that because I think that scene where she's giving a careers talk to some secondary school student, you know, um, like high school students about pursuing careers in finance, I think that scene is often highlighted as quite false and sometimes she's described as lying to the children and presenting a um, falsified version of her life in order to convince them of something and I really wanted to draw that link to the novel itself because I think sometimes there's an expectation that the novel is in some way you know an authentic experience one person's life rendered and I really wanted to point to the construction of it and also the fact that it its purpose is to serve as entertainment and to serve up experiences, of experiences, some of them quite negative, as essentially light entertainment, and mm-hmm. to just draw the parallel between those two things and say, um, to read it critically, I suppose.
1: And does that kind of, does the titles almost demand for a, a deeper level of critical engagement? Do you find that that, is hard to balance with your desire to still have the novel prepare us for entertainment as well?
2: I think I was incredibly aware that it has to work on the surface level as a novel. All of these things I want to do about language, all of these metafictional things, all of these questions about form, none of those will work if it doesn't function as a novel and sit in the genre it's supposed to sit in. Um, So approaching it for writing, I really had to wear two hats and to make sure um, that it did work uh, as a novel. And I think going back to leaning on conventional tropes in the novel and plotting really helped to kind of give it that structure. Um, And I I hope that it brings the two together and I hope that it's stronger um, for having that story and it doesn't feel tacked on.
1: It, it certainly came together for me. The your work is suffused with lyricism, by which I mean both a. Uh, poetic beauty to the prose and its confrontation with mortality. There's a stark question at the heart of the novel, which asks whether or not death is the only escape door from the cycle of exploitation and abuse experienced by Black subjects of capital's new empire. Were you hesitant at all about the bleakness of the choice your narrator presents, assimilation or death?
2: Well, I guess I'll do another one of those things I'm probably not supposed to do and spoil the novel slightly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the the character has cancer and decides not to seek treatment. And to me, that was very literal in a lot of ways. Uh, In the UK and the US, black women have a higher mortality rate for cancer, And in the UK, in the under 40s age group, that is the excess mortality, so it's not explained by socioeconomic background, it's not explained by um, comorbidities, there is just some unmeasurable or as yet unmeasured reason why black women are dying of this more frequently. The reason the narrator has a choice in this and has the option to avoid that is that her company pays for comprehensive private medical insurance. That's why she has this early screening. That's why she knows she can do something about it. And I really wanted to, with this novel, sit in the discomfort of the, the question, what does it mean when your company is more invested in keeping you alive than your country is? Hmm.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes, and, and I have been reading recently more and more about some of the some of the thoughts on why in the in both sort of science and sociological terms black women are subject to this early death and it is it, it's shocking and it seems to cross uh nations and cross medical uh, traditions and cultures it's extraordinary and extraordinarily upsetting and it gives a um, an, another layer to this question that is asked about what counts as the ultimate subjectivity in the novel. were you were you encountering this kind of work on medicine and the the, the way in which black women are the are in some ways the inheritor of this um, uh, of this terrible inequity when you were writing?
2: I think I was really interested in it coming again to this question of capitalism, it's another instance, I think, where um, the agnosticism of capitalism is addressing a problem in some ways that if we take a more socialized approach to entrenches, um, perhaps inequalities, and I think it's not an easy, it's not an easy problem, but I think it's also a problem we don't look at straight on very often, and I wanted to try to. Do you have
1: any particular novels or works of literature that were in your mind as inspirations for the writing of Assembly? And would you recommend some books that you've been loving recently?
2: So, Myth Today, which is an essay uh, by Roland Barthes, I think really um, influenced my approach to how I wrote the novel, and he talks in that essay about myth being defined as language or an image that's been appropriated to taken out of its original context and used to signify something else altogether. And he talks about the novel quite explicitly as a way of examining uh, these mythologies. Um, And it just kind of resonated for me and brought together, going back to that question of neutrality in language, questions of how history can sometimes be concealed or rebranded as the natural state of things. It really brought together um, a lot of the ideas I was thinking about and helped me to think, helped me to clarify, I suppose, my approach uh, with writing the novel.
1: You're going to make so many of my friends happy to have this <laughs> this bot, uh referenced here, and it does it unlocks for me uh, w- wonderful things about your work with semiotics and and structuralism.
2: I'm really happy to hear that. I think it was um, it was really a big influence for me. Um, and there's also Postmodern Blackness, which is an essay by Bell Hooks, um, which is quoted in, in the novel, but in a different context. I think what really resonated to me was um, her talking about Black essentialism. I mean, the essay was written 20 years ago, but it feels incredibly fresh. She talks about how, um, particularly in the publishing industry, there's a focus on Black narratives uh, being about concrete gut-level experience and not being experimental, not being mm-hmm. um, analytical. And it really, she made the case that Black writing can be cerebral, essentially, and still succeed on commercial terms. And I think it was such a useful essay when I needed to clarify to myself and perhaps to others why I was writing it the way I was writing it. And I wasn't writing so a more traditional novel. Um, it, it was really invigorating, I thought.
1: I didn't. I, I guess I haven't read this essay, but it is striking um, how much it resonates with the debates that were going on amongst Black intellectuals and writers in South Africa towards the end of apartheid and then just after about uh, the role of play and experiment in in creative writing and how that would uh, either distract from or enhance uh, the way in which the creative arts directly confronted material life.
2: Mm, mm, I think so. And there's a novel, um, Exquisite Cadavers by uh, Mina Kandasami, which I absolutely love. And it's, it really engages with that question of what does it mean uh, for a racialized person to write experimental literary fiction. And I think it, it's incredibly self aware um, and just incredibly beautiful writing. She's a poet as well. And uh, for me, just kind of was exactly the sort of book <laughs> that I, I hope to be able to produce too. Mm. Um, and other books I'm loving um, there's Bola by Pi Tim Statovsky, which is. It's, you know, on the surface about about war and how war um, or um, conflicts can pull people apart. But it really succeeds for me on the individual relationship level and as an exploration of domesticity, Um, it it's got some moments that are really deeply sad, but also some half out loud funny lines. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Um, and I've also been uh, the last couple of weeks revisiting some of my favourite poetry too. Um, so, the collection, or well, the three poems called Three Poems by Hannah Sullivan, um, and My Darling from the Lions by Rachel, Rachel Long.
1: Thank you. These sound wonderful. And I will put both the books and the essays with links on our website at burnedbybooks.com so that listeners can seek them out. Uh, Natasha, this was such a wonderful and rich conversation about a really wonderful debut novel. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you so much um, for having me on and for the amazing questions.
1: It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all from me today. My great thanks to Natasha Brown, whose recommendations will be available on the website at burnedbybooks.com with links that will take you to independent bookstores that need your support. Please do seek out Assembly. You will not be disappointed. My next episode brings two guests, the amazing novelist Fernanda Melchor and her translator Sophie Hughes. Until next time, this has been burned by books.